Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Six facilities that are part of New York's prison system will close next March amid a decade-long decline in the number of people the state incarcerates. The closures, announced Monday by State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision officials, scheduled for March 10, 2022, are Ogdensburg Correctional Facility, Mariah Schock Incarceration Correctional Facility, Willard Drug Treatment Campus, Southport Correctional Facility, Downstate Correctional Facility, and Rochester Correctional Facility. No layoffs are anticipated, and the cost cutting through the closures is expected to save $142 million. Spokesman Tom Malley said in his statement, quote, DOCCS will work closely with the various bargaining units to provide staff with opportunities for priority placement via voluntary transfers, as well as priority employment at other facilities or other state agencies as a result of the formal civil service process that is followed with the closure of a correctional facility, end quote. State officials reviewed about 50 facilities for potential closure before selecting the six that will close next year. All of the facilities slated for closure have populations below 1,000 people, and some are operating at less than half capacity. The closures are the latest in a line of prison facilities to be shuttered by New York in the last 10 years, as the number of people in prison has steadily declined. New York's population of incarcerated people stands at 31,469, the lowest number since 1984. However, New York's prisons still hold roughly two times more incarcerated people today than in the 1970s. Advocates for criminal justice law reform called for further action from the governor, including the more frequent use of clemency and action on measures meant to make parole easier for older people in prison. Quote, the governor must use her clemency powers frequently, inclusively, and transparently. She can and should end mass incarceration with the stroke of a pen, said Jose Saldana, the director of the Release Aging People in Prison campaign. He continued, quote, The legislator must pass the elder parole and fair and timely parole bills. Without these measures, and despite these closures, thousands will continue to needlessly languish behind bars, end quote. The Board of Correction is meant to serve as an independent check on the entire New York City jail system and to ensure that those in city custody are treated humanely. It has the power to inspect the city's jails at any time, even daily, and issues reports which function as open letters on jail conditions or public notices that the Department of Correction has violated its rules. The Board has a $3.3 million budget covering some 30 employees who are supposed to oversee a $1.2 billion jail system and its more than 9,000 Department of Correction workers. Yet the board has not issued any notices of violation during the COVID-19 pandemic, not even after board members had documented horrible conditions while investigating a death at the Rikers Island Jail Complex in April. 
During COVID, out of concern for both the health of staff members and detainees, the board cut back its visits significantly. Now, staff go into the jails, but they are not required to. When the board does make critical findings, it often has not shared them. A report on the first three deaths of Rikers detainees from COVID-19 was not released publicly until a public defender organization saw it using the state's Freedom of Information law. Even then, it was in draft form and the board redacted the report's recommendations. As conditions worsened inside Rikers this summer, the board canceled its meeting in July and was unable to reschedule it for August because it could not summon enough of its members to meet the required quorum. You're the oversight, Dr. Victoria A. Phillips, who works with the Urban Justice Center, testified at the board's meeting in September. Oversee this work, make sure it happens. Please do it before someone else dies. Staff shortages have long been a challenge for the correction system given the low pay and grueling nature of the work. But the coronavirus pandemic and its impact on the labor market has pushed many prisons into crisis. Officers are retiring and quitting in droves while officials struggle to recruit new employees. At a Georgia State House of Representatives hearing on prison conditions in September, a corrections officer testified that on a good day, there were maybe six or seven officers to supervise roughly 1,200 people. He said he had recently been assigned to look after 400 prisoners by himself. There weren't enough nurses to provide medical care. Quote, all the officers absolutely despise working there, said the officer, who didn't give his name for fear of retaliation. At federal prisons across the country, guards are picketing in front of their facilities over understaffing, while everyone from prison teachers to dentists is pulled in to cover security shifts. Unions representing prison officers also claim vaccine mandates will drive out unvaccinated employees and exacerbate understaffing, though it's unclear how big of an impact those rules will have. University of Michigan economist Betsy Stevenson writes, quote, When jobs become riskier, it becomes harder to attract workers. By failing to protect prisoners from COVID, the criminal justice system not only created an unfair risk of severe illness and death for the incarcerated, but the increased COVID risk to employees has undoubtedly contributed to staffing shortages. Quote, there are dozens of reasons to leave and very few to stay, said Brian Daw, National Director of One Voice United, a nonprofit supporting corrections officers. Having fewer guards means significantly more dangerous conditions for incarcerated people. Growing shortages means a rise in lockdowns. Restrictions that might have begun as a way to stop the spread of COVID-19 have continued because there aren't enough guards to supervise activities. Some incarcerated people say they can't take classes, participate in group therapy sessions, or even work out in the recreation yard or take a shower. That can force those in general population into de facto solitary confinement and those already in segregation into near total lockdown. Two thirds of the men in Nebraska's prisons can't see visitors on the weekends when most families are free to travel because of understaffing. Quote, as of October, we have not had yard for two weeks, wrote one man at Illinois' Pontiac Correctional Center, where officials report 35% of correction officers' jobs are vacant. I feel very overwhelmed. I can't talk about my problems to anyone. I pace back and forth and talk to myself because there's nothing else to do." End quote. 
This week, we talked to our guest Bianca Tylek about prison phone industry giant Global Tellink. GTL profits off prisoners and their families by overcharging them exorbitant fees to talk on the phone. Recent grassroots activism from incarcerated people and other advocates have led to a wave of legislation mandating reduced costs or even free phone calls in some cities and states. Bianca Tylek is founder and executive director of Worth Rises, a nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to dismantling the prison industry and ending the exploitation of those it touches. They work to return the economic resources extracted from affected communities and are part of the prison phone justice movement. This is the first of several episodes devoted to this topic. Here's Bianca. My name is Bianca Tyler. I'm the founder and executive director of Worth Rises. We are a national uh, criminal justice organization working to dismantle the prison industry and end the exploitation of those with targets. At Worth Rises, some of our most notable campaigns are in the prison phone justice space. We led the first a successful campaign in the nation to make phone calls entirely free out of a jail system in New York City back in 2018. When that legislation went into effect, it saved directly impacted families nearly $10 million a year and uh, increased communication by almost 40% overnight, which became the new normal. And there were so many more people who were uh, incarcerated and detained who were able to communicate with their loved ones, communicate with their attorneys, communicate with um, social workers and other support systems they needed as they awaited trial uh, and prepared for their cases. In the year that followed, uh, we were able to help San Francisco get to a similar place. Uh, In 2019, San Francisco announced that it too would be going to free uh, calls and that uh, went into effect in 2020, um, saved directly impacted families in the San Francisco area uh, over a million dollars every year. um, And again, uh, increased communication um, by nearly 40% over uh, overnight. Since then, uh, we've been uh, both Uh, leading and supporting campaigns around the country, uh, both at the county level, but also now at the state level. saw San Diego and Los Angeles go uh, free, um, at least make the announcement in recent months and and working towards implementation. Uh, We're also working with Louisville, Kentucky, um, that will be looking to move in that direction. Uh, But we also passed our first statewide campaign in Connecticut, Uh, this year in 2021, and Connecticut uh, has now passed legislation making it the very first state to make all communication, that's not just calls, but also uh, video communication, uh, electronic messaging, um, all uh, communication free across its entire prison system, um, which will go into effect in 2022, Uh, and uh, that is now uh, policy that is moving into other uh, state uh, for states for consideration, including Massachusetts, which just had two hearings um, on this legislation, and we're really hopeful that um, will pass by the end of the year. Um, New York is also considering legislation for the 2022 uh, legislative session, uh, as well as uh, Michigan and Virginia, which are getting ready to introduce. Um, so. You know, there are the the prison phone justice fight um, is really expanding and expanding rapidly at this point. Um, And we're super excited to see it. 
So, I mean, somebody has to provide phone service, right? So mm-hmm. who's doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, government's not providing it itself in most cases. In terms of how the corporations are responding, there are multiple corporations in this case, and it's important for people to understand that. This is a $1.4 billion uh, space that um, is dominated in large part by just three corporations, uh, Securus, GTL, and IC Solutions. The last 10% is just a handful of of very small uh, niche companies. Um, But these big three um, are really the dominant players, and all three of them are actually owned by uh, private equity firms or essentially investors and financiers. Um, And those financiers have really been puppeteering in large part uh, these companies for decades and really reaping the the benefits from this extraction, exorbitant extraction of wealth um, that uh, these companies facilitate out of directly impacted communities. In terms of the the direction in which we're all moving around uh, free calls, obviously, this is not a trend that the corporations and the industry, you know, are a fan of. In uh, fact, we saw in our Connecticut fight, Securus actually lobby against the legislation there. Uh, and it took us some time. I mean, eventually they withdrew their opposition. Um, and that came from significant pressure um, from us and other advocates. But they had up until then been lobbying and spent $40,000 lobbying against our bill. You know, I think both Securus and GTL are not thrilled to see uh, the movement towards free. Now, I want to note that just because calls are free for families um, and incarcerated people in jurisdictions that have passed this legislation does not necessarily mean that the communication itself is actually free. At some point, somebody provides communication services. And in most cases, that has meant that uh, it's simply absorbed or paid like any other service in the prison, uh, in a prison or jail. So take food services, for example, or healthcare. How is that paid? It's paid out of the regular operating budget of that agency, right, of that correctional agency. Um, and so this, these pieces of legislation that make calls free for families and people who are inside essentially simply shift that cost back to where it should be, um, which is on the system that has chosen to incarcerate um, people. Uh, And so, you know, it's interesting because the corporations have, you know, less of, they're still going to get paid at the end of the day by somebody. But the reality is that they are going to get paid less. Um, And the reason for that is because Prior to these, this type of legislation, and in you know, obviously the hundreds, if not thousands, of places where phone calls are still being charged to families uh, and incarcerated people, uh, there is a profit sharing agreement essentially between the corporations and those correctional agencies, which means um, that it's not a competitive negotiation for the contract. They essentially give the contract uh, to whoever will give them the most money. Um, and so you see these models that are called commissions, but in real, uh, you know, words is just kickbacks, right? Kickbacks from the companies where they pay a certain percentage of the revenue that they make back to the correctional agency might be 30%, might be 50%, 70%. We've seen as high as over 90% of um, those rates being kicked back to 
uh, the agency. Now, let's be clear. I mean, that is a huge part of the cost, but it's not the whole part of the cost. The corporations would love to scapegoat the correctional agencies and say it's, you know, it's these commissions that are driving up rates. Um, but even in places that don't have commissions, the corporations um, are taking large chunks uh, or where there uh, might be commissions, what's left for the corporations is still pretty significant. But once you move to a free calling scenario where, in essence, the agency now has to pay for that service itself, not only is it not making the revenue that it was making previously, but now it has an incentive to actually negotiate a competitive contract because they don't want to be paying that much. Right. When they were doing it on behalf of family and friends, they don't care because they were making part of that money. Now those rates are being driven lower and lower and lower because these agencies are saying, well, we don't want to pay those rates. Uh, and so that is what is obviously very frustrating to the corporations in this space. It is that shift right um, towards more competitive uh, pricing negotiations around uh, free calling uh, models. That said, one of the other things to really look out for and understand in this field that's happening now is that they're trying to shift to other types of technology that they uh, think will have lo less regulation and oversight. Um, not only are we working on legislation nationally um, at the local, state, federal level to uh, make calls uh, free, but we've also done a lot of work with the federal uh Communications Commission of the FCC on the regulatory side of things, which is to say, you know, where we want to lower costs uh, nationwide by essentially creating regulation. Um, well, you know, these companies are now thinking about how to move communication to um, technologies that are not regulated by the FCC in order to avoid the rate caps set by the agency. So that's sort of, you know, something we're looking out for. Uh, but, you know, the companies are constantly trying to reinvent themselves in a way to get out uh, under, you know, what is a lot of pressure at this point to transform an industry. You know, over the last few years, we've seen obviously a big move to video calling, um, video calling, uh, which, you know, the companies love to call video visitation, but we very, very um Staunchly opposed to those terms. Um, that was a term created in order to try to synonymize the idea of a video call with a, uh, a true visit. Um, and the reality is, we know that there is no version of a video call that feels like a hug. And, you know, that, that uh, a video call can never replace in person visits. Um, but that was their language. I would say, you know, not every slogan is trademarked. Um, and that was one that they really, um, pushed heavily and in fact worked for them. Many of the facilities that introduced uh, video calling uh, did in fact remove in-person visits so that they could drive more traffic towards these video calling platforms and force people to use them, which are very expensive uh, and also provided kickbacks back to the agencies. Um, they're also not uh, regulated in the same ways by the FCC and other state regulatory authorities. Now we're seeing a big shift uh, even past video calling, but to tablets. You know, I basically describe it as, you know, correctional facilities are discovering the cell phone the first time, right? It's like the smartphone that we've all had for many, many years. 
They're now, um, you know, talking about introducing tablets that have uh, capabilities for phone calls, for uh, for video calls, potentially for electronic messaging, and for other types of media and entertainment. Um, and again, these tablet devices um, do not have uh, the same type of regulation. Um, and it's particularly worrisome because some of the agencies that are moving towards the tablet are um, moving towards the tablet at in uh, lieu of wall phones. Um, and so we're going to see uh, how that plays out. So these companies have been engaged in these remarkably predatory practices for decades. And there's more and more of a spotlight on them these days because of these uh, prison phone justice campaigns. And as a result, we see them taking more and more drastic steps to essentially whitewash their predation. Um, and what we're seeing is both the companies and their executives donating to charities, right, um, taking on um, really bizarre contests and partnerships um, to try to uh, sort of better their image in the public. And there's been a number of recent examples uh, that, you know, have really taken some headlines. Uh, for example, Securus, uh, one of the big, uh, big two really entered into a partnership with uh, Lecrae, who is a Christian hip hop artist, to do a hip hop contest, uh, and um, you know, it was you know just really awful to see uh, somebody who I think you know wants to represent wealth for the community um, in the music industry uh, partner with such a predatory company uh, to quote unquote try to create hope inside, as if Securus isn't stripping hope. Uh, from these facilities every single day by exploiting families. You know, we raised that, uh, unfortunately, to, we raised that to his team. And unfortunately, you know, he decided to stay in that partnership. You know, we knew he had gotten paid for that. Um, he's since claimed that he will donate that money to, to charity. Um, but, you know, in the end, we know that there are so many people really disappointed with that partnership. And we know that there's also so many ways for music to create hope in ways that doesn't involve partnering with the industry. Um, and two immediately that come, or three even immediately that come to my mind are, you know, Drakeo, the ruler was a rapper who actually recorded an entire album last year, or was it in 2019, but an entire album uh, over the phone while he was incarcerated in Los Angeles. Um, and in fact, the name of the album was called Thank You for Using GTL because of how many times they obviously um, listened to that, but also they talked about how much money they spent on the um, calls just to help them record that album. And that was, you know, a really remarkable um, sort of musical feat, but also act of rebellion, right, against this system that was super necessary. Um, I know, you know, songwriters that have donated um, uh, musical uh, instruments, right, and other equipment to facilities um, so that people who are incarcerated could create music, right? And just recently, um, a big criminal justice advocate by name Jason Flom, um, who's the CEO of Lava Records and been in the music industry as chairman of Atlantic Records and um, in many other forms throughout uh, the space, authored a uh, guest column in Variety specifically 
you know, um, taking a pledge to never partner with the prison industry because we know that the road to hope can never go through that industry. Um, and so we see, you know, we see all of that. On the other side, we saw GTL recently um, engage in a partnership with Sesame Street. And, um, and Sesame Street has historically uh, has a line of its worker program um, around supporting children with incarcerated parents. And the donation for GTL was supposed to be used um, to develop resources to help children with incarcerated parents cope. And there's nothing more, you know, I think ironic, but also detestable to think that the very corporations that are making it hard for children with incarcerated parents because one in three of those families with an incarcerated level goes into debt over the cost of a call because they can't, you know, afford food on their table. The lights in the house, the, you know, car note are the ones that are going to offer the money to create resources to cope with parental incarceration. It's, it's really something that is hard to stomach and it's just not palatable. And, and thankfully, um, you know, through some advocacy and work, we are hearing uh, that, you know, Sesame Street is rethinking this partnership. And, you know, our hope is that they make the right decision and um, pull out of it, unlike Lecrae and his team. Um, but it's not, you know, just those kind of stunts. Those are like these PR stunts and uh, that these companies engage in. There's, you know, Securus has its uh, foundation right now that is giving out $25,000 grants to small organizations on the ground, right? Doing work in reentry. And it's it's really, you know, cutting deals with the devil and taking money from, you know, the, the same, you know, grandmother who uh, is struggling to talk to her son in order to now fund reentry work. And it, um, it's a really uh, awful loop uh, that, uh, you know, we really want to stray away from. We want everyone to get involved in the fight for prison phone justice. And we actually have a ton of resources available. Having done this now successfully in multiple different jurisdictions, um, we have built some toolkits, some messaging guides um, that can guide um, you know, activists and organizers, advocates on the ground, um, no matter what level you wanna fight for, whether that's your local county jail um, or you wanna fight for your state, um, you know, there are resources and we encourage folks to visit um, worthrises.org backslash resources to find some of those. Um, also visit connectfamiliesnow.com um, to see what campaigns are already happening across the country um, that you can plug into uh, that, you know, they are uh, always looking for more support, more volunteers, more funding, whatever it might be that you have to give. And, you know, and finally, I, I would say, you know, follow the work um, on, on the socials. You know, we are on um, both uh, Twitter and Instagram, just at Work Rises. And we share a lot about the campaigns, the prison phone justice campaigns around the nation. Um, and uh, in particular, you know, calls to action when we need them. So if that's, you know, to sign a petition or send an email or make a call, um, you know, the best way to stay abreast of those is to sign up for a newsletter on our site or to follow us on uh, social media. But, you know, we hope at this point that everyone takes up the mantle 
uh, to make uh, calls and communication free because it is a remarkably necessary tool, you know, to help people come home, to help keep families together, to mitigate trauma for children, to help organize against the system, um, and to improve uh, reentry outcomes. And so, you know, yeah, we really hope people join us. This has been KiteLine. Thank you to everyone who contributed to the show. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.